You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. So we are big fans of this week's guest. Lindsay Stanberry is with me in the studio. And for those of you who don't know Lindsay yet, you certainly will <laughs> soon because she is the work and money director at Refinery29, which is one of our favorite sites. It's her job there to provide millennial women with smart, entertaining financial and career advice and All the way back in 2015, she was behind the first work and money stories at Refinery29, covering everything from retirement funds and paid family leave to the inspiring stories of female entrepreneurs that she met in Haiti. She's out with her first book this month, Refinery29 Money Diaries, Everything you've ever wanted to know about your finances and everyone else's. Lindsay, thanks so much for being here. I love the subtitle. I love the subtitle, too. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations. It is just out. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. It's exciting. Where does your passion for personal finance come from? You know, I really stumbled into it. Um, I was working at Refinery29, actually, as a copy editor. I'm a really bad copy editor. <laughs> um, so it was not a great role for me. And we started talking one day with our editor-in-chief, uh, Christine Barbaric, about different stories and different groups that weren't being covered in the press. And I was like, you know, millennials get a really bad rep for money. And I was like, but my husband and I, who... We both work in media, saved $100,000 to buy an apartment in Brooklyn. And she's like, you should write about that. So I wrote, you know, an essay about this experience. My poor husband, um, I talked a lot about his funny money habits. Like? like he never takes cabs. We never go out to brunch. Um, he, at the time, was eating um, a peanut butter and sandwich every day for lunch. No jelly, because that was too expensive. <laughs> um, so he hates, you know, surcharges of any kind. And... That helped us save money. And people would probably argue that, you know, we had no lives, but that wasn't the case. And, you know, in New York, it's so expensive. Why would you ever want to afford something like that? But, you know, it was important to me to kind of reframe that conversation around millennials and money. And then after I did it, it made me realize it was a very popular article. People were really... Yeah, they came out of the woodwork for this yeah, story. Yeah, they really did. Our readers really... For as much as they complain about home buying, they are really interested in it. And when I finished it and it came out, it made me realize that, like, nobody was really talking to millennials about money in this kind of conversational way, or at least I wasn't seeing it. And it made me want to learn more and start asking a lot of questions because I was a good saver, but I wasn't good at, like, investing, and I didn't really understand my 401k. And I figured if I had these questions, other people had these questions. Absolutely. And the beauty of being in my position is that I could just start asking them. 
so um, I got very lucky. I had, you know, a sponsor at Refinery at the time. She kind of ushered me into this role. Um, and we just kind of hit the ground running from there. And it's been really amazing. So when did you start Money Diaries? Our whole team, by the way, <laughs> everybody loves these. Money Diaries are these look. Well, you tell everybody. So Money Diaries is our beloved series where women um, share their spending over seven days. They also include information like how much she's paying in rent, if she's paying student loan debt, you know, what's her um, electricity bill every month. You know, we're talking like minutia Mm -hmm. and people eat up. They want They want every detail. And then she talks about how she goes through her week and she talks about her spending, but she also talks about her skincare routine and her workout routine. And sometimes, you know, there are illicit activities and sometimes she talks about having sex and, you know, they really share everything and it's amazing. And it's like, you know, a really intimate look in someone's life and they're anonymous. So people feel more comfortable sharing these crazy details. When you look at these details, it gets... It allows you to see that you're not alone. Yes. That you're smarter than some people. (laughs) That you're not as smart as some people. You you pick up their their tricks and their their hacks, which I think is really really valuable. I know they're anonymous, but who are they? Like, where do you find them? You know, they come to us. Um, The series was an idea of a Refinery Twenty Nine editor, Jessica Chow, who is a genius and also a uh, self-described nosy millennial and she came to me with the idea and I was like uh, you know we'll tr- we'll try it I don't know it could be boring and when we got the first one the first diarist bought avocado toast at brunch which we thought was hilarious because what a stereotypical millennial right. trope and she went out on a date with a guy that she met on Tinder and they did coke and it was so shocking my editor and I were like <laughs> oh my god this is amazing um and you know from that first one we were soliciting some friends we had a few colleagues at refinery who did it that was a little controversial and then people just started sending them in completely finished and about a year ago um We've been very lucky at Refinery because we've had a lot of support for the project. Kind of, it's been a little bit of grassroots effort. Mm-hmm. So we had somebody on the product team, Brittany Kahn, um, who was like, I love this series. I'm going to build you a form so people can just directly, you know, put in their information. And that just made the series explode. So as soon as it was as easy as you weren't having to fill out a Google Doc anymore, you were filling out this form. It just, it took off. So we get, you know, sometimes up to 10 submissions a day. We and can't publish them fast enough. That that's that's fantastic. One of the things that Catherine on our team was commenting on was that you learn that everybody has problems. Like yeah. money problems are like relationship yeah. problems. That you you have them whether you're beautiful or not so beautiful, mm-hmm. whether you're rich or not so rich. You yeah. you have them whether you've got um a six-figure job or whether you're earning $40,000 a year. It's true. It makes people feel awkward in whatever situation they're in. So why, I mean, are you ever surprised by, the Coke was clearly surprising. I can see <laughs> on your face how, how clearly surprising that still was. But yes. why, what is it about these revelations that have surprised you the most? I, I'm always surprised by how open people are, especially because the other thing about Money Diaries that it's very famous for having a very aggressive commenter community who really take 
people to task for all kinds of things. If they think they eat too much fast food, if they think they waste their money, if they think that they are relying too much on their boyfriend to pick up the check at dinner. It's really interesting the kinds of things that the commenters pick up on and judge people for. So I'm always grateful that women are still willing to share. Um, granted, we are also living in a time where people overshare. So I guess in some ways, you know, this is kind of a safe way to overshare because you're anonymous. The comments get us into the advice and the book is different than the column. Yes. The book is different than the series because the book has real advice that you've reported out. You break the book up into nine sections, life and money, work and money, kids and money, and you've given some advice in each in each one. How did you decide to go about it? Uh, it was, I don't know, I sometimes marvel at the fact that I did this. Um it was topics that were really important to me and that I also saw were really important in our community. And most of the stuff that we cover at Refinery in Work and Money are based on conversations that I've been having with other young women. So it was kind of like, you know, two or three years worth of advice that I've been collecting and then also talking to a bunch of financial advisors. We worked with a team of all-female financial advisors. That was really important to me. I think the way that women speak to women about money is very different than the way men speak to women, to women about money. That is why we have this show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so important. Um, and, you know, in speaking to them, you know, one section we talk about building what I worked with this woman, Barbara Genty, who's a CFP, and she has this thing that she calls an escape plan. And it's like life insurance and a will. And it's these things that I hadn't even considered that we should include in the book. And so once I started talking to her about it, I was like, oh, of course, like, I'm not even thinking about this. But in fact, I should get a will. I have not done it yet. <laughs> but I did take care of a lot of financial tasks as I was working my way through the book. I want to get into the nitty gritty in some of the chapters. But before I do that, let me just remind everybody, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments because together we want to inspire all women to be in the financial front seat, which means knowing what you own, what you owe, how to reach your goals, and having a financial checkup at least once a year. From understanding the basics of market volatility and risk to creating an investment plan, Fidelity can help, and you can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are back with Lindsay Stanberry, author of Refinery29 Money Diaries. All right, let's stick into some of these chapters. You come right out and you say you think budgets are BS. It's true. I do. Why? I think that they can be really restrictive in the same way. I compare them to dieting. And I find, especially when I first started writing about money, that I would talk to financial advisors and they would start comparing getting your finances in order the same way that you would, like, get a beach body. And beach body are, like, verbatim at Refinery29. We hate beach bodies. <laughs> and I think that's... I hate them, too, by all, the way. Right? I've never had one. <laughs> no, I never have either. They're silly. A beach body is just your body at the beach. Um, but budgets, I feel like they're often very prescriptive and restrictive. And I actually find when I get too obsessed with managing my money, things get worse. That's when I start overspending. So I think 
I wanted people to be thinking of it in more of a holistic sense than like, you know, don't spend because I hate that like judgy, um, you know, quit the cappuccino, quit the, quit the cappuccino, don't buy those shoes. And like, granted, like if you're really in credit card debt, you shouldn't be buying the latte and or buying the shoes, but you've got a bigger problem than, you know, those small fixes. So how do you get, how do you solve the problem? How do you tell people to look at it? Well, I, I mean, I think you should do a money diary. <laughs> um, I do think that just getting to know your finances, understanding where your money is going. I think a lot of people get into the habit of swiping their credit card without even looking at the total. I do that. Um, so when you stop and you pause and you really think, like, this is where my money's going, you're going to get better at it. You just are. And it's easy to kind of deflect that and be like, I don't, I don't want to think about it. It's too scary. But then you kind of miss out on all the good stuff that comes with thinking about money. So, like, planning for your future, which is really exciting. I think that, you know, there's so much advice on saving for retirement. And who wants to think about saving for retirement when, like, you just need to get through the next day? So it's like, how do we start talking about the other things that you might want to be saving for? You have advice in the book, and you've got 32 different challenges that help people save $500, which is really a starter emergency fund. So a lot of people who are listening to this show, they're strapped. They Mm -hmm. find themselves living paycheck to paycheck. How do you start an emergency fund if you are living in that way? I think that it's really important to remember that that emergency fund is going to prevent you from getting deeper into debt. So even though it can be really crummy to save it at the time, that's the thing that's really going to protect you in the long run. So it's like those immediate sacrifices that you can make, the like packing your lunch every day, taking Ken's advice and don't, my husband, Ken, uh, don't take cabs. Don't eat jelly. Don't eat jelly. Maybe <laughs> eat jelly. Um you know, figuring out small ways that you can squirrel it away. And I also think that there's like a real thrill. And once you get that little bit, because it like builds the momentum. I was talking to a coworker, uh, our senior editor, Rory Lamb, about the fact that like the saving is fun, but then the spending can be hard sometimes because you get so excited about mm-hmm. the, the saving. So I do think like giving yourself goals, realistic, reasonable goals. This $500, I hope people are able to save it. I also recognize that, yes, we are strapped. But I think that, you know, you do that money diary, you look for little things where you're wasting money. We all waste money. We all do. I have never seen somebody's spending tracker. And I've asked a lot of people to do it because I think it is pretty magic. I've never seen a spending tracker where I or they couldn't find something Something. to change. So you talk a lot about Ken, your husband, and his his (laughs) diarying of money. What would we see if we saw yours? Oh, I am definitely someone who gives into the more occasional splurges. I've really – writing this book has, you know, curbed my latte habit because I think, you know – I'm giving all this advice. Maybe I should skip the coffee and drink the office coffee. It's not that bad. And I have a hard time pushing the trigger on big purchases. That That's a big thing for me. So, like, I save up the money and then I, I don't want to spend it, which is, you know, good and bad. Well, it's good in that you can save it. Yes. I mean, it's funny. I, I find getting people to start saving is not a lot of fun. But once you have the money saved, it's really fun. And yeah. more than fun, it's really powerful. It's really powerful. And that's a big part of it, right? I think, like, in the era of Me Too, thinking about these emergency funds 
as like your ticket to freedom is so important. And I think especially for women. And if that means giving up some little things, I would hope it's worth it. I wanted to ask you about two last things. What did you hear or what what are the constant, consistent threads that you hear about investing? That it's hard. <laughs> I mean, I I find it hard to navigate. Um, uh, you and I were on that panel at SoFi, and my favorite question was from a woman in the audience who said, what's the secret? And, and there like, is no there secret. There is no secret. It's not some secret club. So I think that that's the biggest thing, that it's really scary. And then it's for, it's not for young women. You know, it, that, that entry into it is really hard. And do you hear this from women who have 401ks who are already doing it, but just not owning it? I don't think that people connect 401ks with investing. I don't either. And it, it boggles my mind yeah. because that's exactly what investing is. I, I sat down with a woman at one point who said, well, I'm not constantly monitoring my portfolio to make a change if the markets are going down. Right. And I said, that, that's trading. <laughs> you know, that's bad investing. Right. Right. But it's not – there's so little out there that's geared toward women that makes it accessible still. What – did you hear about wealth? Chapter nine is about <laughs> wealth and money. Is being wealthy something that we want? Do we aspire to it? Do we like the word? We don't like the word. We think it's an impossibility. I think a lot of women think it's impossibility. And I think that there's still a big hang up in society that a woman could be the sole earner of that wealth. But I want to be rich. I think, like, it should be okay to say that. I think so, too. And I think it should be exciting to say that. You know, it should be, like, something that we're all, like, gunning for. Like, why not? Absolutely. Why not? The book is Refinery29's Money Diaries. Lindsay Stanberry, thank you so much. Thank you. This is really fun. It was fun for us, too, and we hope that you'll come back. Anytime. All right. And Kelly and I will be right back. Our producer, Kelly Hulkgren, is with me in the studio. Hi, everyone. And you have loved Money Diaries since it launched. I am an avid reader of the Money Diaries. I love seeing what other people are paying for their apartments and what those apartments look like, especially in New York City. So, Pictures have added so much. Yes. We did for many, many years a story in Money Magazine that was kind of an annual thing about do you measure up? And it was really popular because people like to see like, well, am I earning as much as people my age? Am I saving as much? Am I investing as well mm -hmm. or far worse? Yep. You know, it's all keeping up with the Joneses times a 100. But I also like too, it's, yeah, it's nice to also get outside of your peer group like we were talking about too because – Hopefully everyone listening to our show is talking to their girlfriends about money, but sometimes you guys can fall victim to groupthink or you right. find your spending habits are so similar because you spend so much time together. It's nice to get other perspectives, even if you don't really know the women in the city or across the country. Yeah. So if you were writing a money diary, Ooh. would you do it? Yeah, I think I would actually. I'm yeah? at a place in my life where I would air my dirty laundry. You've confessed before about the Starbucks. Yes. But what would be – what other surprises would be lurking? Hmm. I think a surprise is how much I spend on ride-sharing services mm -hmm. in the winter because I think I 
tend to go over my budget, my transportation budget every single year. So that would be a surprise. Another surprise would be my gym membership that I'm not great about using. And another surprise would be that I probably could be saving a lot more for retirement than I am. If you did all the other things and changed those up? Yeah, I I think I need to rework my numbers. Mm -hmm. I've been meaning to do that. And I think I could be putting a lot more away than I am right now. And that's something that now that I've put out in the universe, you guys can all keep me accountable for doing. Okay. All right. I'm on it. I'm on it. I mean, I I think I've talked before about how my hair was my big surprise. Oh. Have I I not? No, but now you have to. I, um, before flat irons were a thing, I used to get blowouts like they were going, and before blowouts were a thing, I used to get blowouts be, like they were going out of style, and I still get them now. Mm-hmm. I might get a blowout once a week, but you add up the thirty to forty dollars that it costs every week for a blowout, yeah. and that's thousands of dollars a year. But your hair always looks so good. But I'm, thank you. I'm very lucky that I have the kind of hair where I can almost go a whole week on a blowout. I just grossed out our entire listenership, but it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This, you know, the the last couple of days it's in a ponytail (laughs) and I will wash it if it needs to be washed. I will wash it. But, um, no, that's my, like, I would rather get a blowout than a massage. That's a big statement. Yes. I can't relate to that. Yeah, it's true. For me, it's true. But then again, people probably look at the back of my head and they're like, oh, she could use a blowout. No. So. <laughs> no, you've got the kind of hair that dries pretty. Like my <sighs> hair dries. You're too young to remember Roseanne, Roseanne O'Dana, but my hair dries like out to, out to here. Crazy, kinky hair. I think we need to do money diaries. We could do money diaries. Yeah, we should do some. All right. We'll volunteer to Lindsay. All right. So questions. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Kelly just hit her head into the microphone. What is wrong with me today? All right. What okay. do we have? Our first question is from Tara. My city visa credit card is forcing me to convert to a MasterCard at year's end. City is no longer partnering with Visa. I have excellent credit, but I'm brand loyal to Visa. I don't want a MasterCard. Should I close the card and switch to another vendor for a Visa or keep it and swallow the conversion? Closing and reopening a new account will affect my credit score, correct? Am I making too big of a deal out of this? I think so. Mm -hmm. I think it's too big a deal. I've been through these switches before. It doesn't matter at all. I don't know. I think Visa works very well. I think MasterCard works very well. Their payment networks do not let me down. <laughs> but I've never heard of of loyalty like that. I, I, I understand being loyal to specific card programs at particular banks where they give you five points for every dollar that you spend or they give you, I don't know, something else that you're probably paying for with your annual fee. But it's not this this one doesn't make any sense to me is it going to kill your credit score to close this account down and open a new one no but if it's the long if you've had this card for a very long time you will see it and if it represents a big chunk of your credit history you will see it so i would mm. just say go with the flow go with the flow and if it doesn't have an annual payment you could keep it open and just not use it you could i and i know credit score calculations no, no, have no. a few or more than a few different metrics, but 
is it less of an impact to her score if she just keeps this one open and opens a new one? Yes. Okay. So then, yeah, so maybe just keep it open and open a visa that you'll use instead. Yeah, that would work too. Okay. Now one from Domenica. I have two credit cards that I owe approximately 6000 on. They both have about 24% interest rates on them. I opened one of them about six months ago and got pre-approved for a home loan about a month ago. My issue is that my credit score finally went over 700 but I want to transfer these balances to a 0% interest account. I'm afraid that would mean too many credit inquiries within the year and would bring my score down. I'm making $500 in payments between the cards and have stopped using them. I just hate that I'm paying $160 in interest. Should I wait a year to transfer the balance or should I call the bank and ask for a lower interest rate? Call the bank. Absolutely call the bank. I don't, I'm with you. I think that's a lot of inquiries in a short period of time. But if you call the bank and you basically say, I want to keep this card, but I'm not going to keep it at a 24% interest rate and I can qualify for a lower interest rate, my guess is they'll work with you. And if they won't, and if they won't, unless you are going to be in the market for a home loan or a car loan in the very near future, like a year, I wouldn't worry about it all that much. Um, but I would secure the new card before you get rid of the old one. Okay. And we'll do one more from Robert. I'm self-employed in a declining industry. Sales are down and requirements are up. My annual income is about $25,000 and on pace for the same this year. My question is, my monthly cost for medical insurance is $1,400 for a family of four. I'm considering not having medical insurance for the first time in my life, but having a very difficult time deciding. If I keep this expense, it puts me upside down each month and creates financial hardship, borrowing off my credit line every month to pay the bill. To make it worse, the medical insurance that's available has such a high deductible that I have to pay out of pocket every time someone goes to the doctor. It makes it feel like the $1,400 per month is a waste. Oh, boy. And he is speaking, Robert, you're speaking for so much of America right now. Um, a couple of things. Based on your income, I wonder if you could qualify for low-cost state-offered health insurance for your children. Um, it is available in many states. You've probably read about these programs in the news lately because they have been a little bit uh, bandied about as being on the chopping block, which I hope they won't be chopped, that is. Figure out what your state, I don't know where you live, so I can't direct you, but figure out what your state is offering and see if you can get your kids covered that way. If you can, you may be able to get a lower cost program, lower cost policy for yourself and your spouse, which may be more affordable. But the other thing you've got to do is solve the income side of the equation. It's pretty clear that what you're earning now is just not sufficient to support your family in the long term. It may mean that your spouse needs to go into the workforce if your spouse isn't already in the workforce or gear up a little bit to earn a little more or that you need to look at your skill set and ask what can you do to put yourself in a position to earn more money, not just this year, but in all those years to come. Because when we look at uh, spending trajectories for families, 
your highest spending years are still to come. So I want you to put yourself in a good position for those years. But I'm really glad that um, you're listening to the show because we like having men here too. We do. And, um, and thanks for writing. Yeah, thank you so much, Robert. Keep us posted. And thank you everyone for writing in. Absolutely. And in our weekly Thrive segment, we talked about millennials for much of the show. And now it's time for some money advice who, like me, are a little bit older. The two biggest strategies for ensuring that you'll have enough money to last you in retirement are saving enough, and we want you to be saving 15% of whatever you're earning, that can include matching dollars, and putting that money to work for you by investing in a portfolio that makes sense for your age and your risk tolerance. But here's an overshadowed strategy that works just as well working a little bit longer. If you're in your 30s, working an extra three to six months at the end of your career is as effective as increasing your savings by 1% every year for 30 years. If you're in your 50s, you may only have to extend your working life by as little as six weeks. This strategy was originally detailed in the New York Times, and it laid out the results of an academic paper called The Power of Working Longer. The secret turns out to be Social Security. Working longer gives Social Security benefits more time to grow and allows you to tap them later and... As we've noted before, for every year that you wait to tap benefits between age 62 and 70, you get an increase in monthly benefits of about 8%, and that is a guaranteed return that's really tough to beat. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Lindsay Stanberry for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, we hope that you will subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review because... It's really important that we hear what you think, but it's also a great way for this show to capture the attention of other people. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with another great guest.